1: Welcome to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host today, Carl Nellis, and we're talking with Jeremy C. Young, Assistant Professor of History at Dixie State University, about his new book, The Age of Charisma, Leaders, Followers, and Emotions in American Society, 1870-1940, to 1940, published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. I think this was published at the end of 2016,
0: wasn't it? Yes, actually, technically the publication date is January 1st, 2017.
1: Oh, just snuck over the line. Well, congratulations on a 2017 publication. (laughs) Well, thank you. Uh, So, yeah, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Let's start with a little bit more about who you are and how you came to study intellectual history and the history of charisma. What brought you to this project? Where are you coming from?
0: Well, it's interesting because I approached uh, I guess I would say I approached intellectual history uh, From the perspective of political history. Uh, As a Mm -hmm. college student, I was interested in presidents in the progressive era, like a lot of college students are. And I went to graduate school at Indiana University, uh, determined to write a biography of Woodrow Wilson. And Mm -hmm. despite the fact that there had been half a dozen marvelous biographies of him already written. And uh, my advisor, Michael McGurr, was smart Mm -hmm. enough to recognize that both that there wasn't really a point to me writing that book, and second, that there was something that I wanted to say that hadn't been said before. And so he just encouraged me to think really deeply about what it was that really attracted me to all of those presidents. Mm
1: -hmm. And what
0: I realized was that I was primarily interested in the way, the sort of emotional response that I, and, and really that Americans in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era had to these charismatic political figures. Mm-hmm. And when I started to investigate, I discovered that it wasn't just political figures. It was religious leaders, uh, social movement leaders, that there was a unique emotional connection between leaders and followers in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. Mm-hmm. and. Yeah so i became interested in in trying to figure out why that was and what effect it had on uh, on ideas and really on modern american society
1: so when did the pieces start to really fall into place and look like the structure of the argument that you have now oh um that's a good question well i would say
0: that the research the research in some ways was the easiest part and the argument in many ways was the hardest part yeah uh yeah. the the research was was easy because I was looking at sources that had been readily available and that no one else had particularly been interested in before. I was, I was <laughs> yeah. looking at basically letters and testimonials that people wrote about their experiences following charismatic leaders and what it meant mm-hmm. to them and why it moved them. These sources have been available for a long time. There's a nice collection of a few hundred of them in the papers of Billy Sunday. Uh, there's, a much larger collection of several thousand in the papers of William Jennings Bryan. There's another collection in the papers of Eugene Debs. There's a published collection of oral histories about followers of Marcus Garvey and just on and on. There's a number of these, these sources and no one had really used them in the way that I wanted to use them because I just wanted to ask these people, these ordinary people writing these letters and testimonials. Right. Why is it that you wanted to follow these, these, these leaders and what did it mean to you? And what I discovered was that it meant a great deal to them. It was a transformative life experience. It, it, they described themselves as being becoming new people, um, conversions that lasted for a lifetime, including secular conversions to political parties. And so the question was, what was new about this? What made it charisma? And what, how did it affect modern society? And that was the hard part, was trying to figure out what exactly I meant when I said the word charisma. And ultimately, the conclusion I came to was that I meant three different things, three overlapping things. Uh, First, that charisma was a unique style of public speaking, which Americans called personal magnetism in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Second, charisma was a relationship between leaders and followers, usually followers of leaders who used that personally magnetic style. And finally, charisma was a discourse of democracy, a way of talking about the role of followers in American public life and the role of ordinary people in American society. Mm -hmm.
1: And you present that in the introduction of the book in a really helpful way by bouncing it off what Weber means when he says charisma. Can you talk about how that helped position you a little bit? Sure.
0: Weber is in some ways referring to the same phenomenon that I am, and in some ways not, because he, of course, he's primarily looking at Germany when he talks about charisma. He's thinking about the Kaiser. He's thinking about Bismarck. Um, but he also mentions Theodore Roosevelt. He comes to America. Right. He sees what Roosevelt is doing. He says, that's charisma. This guy is busting up uh, political conventions through the force of his personality. And so Weber, in many ways, um, uses the term in similar ways to how I use it, but what's different, of course, is that no one in America at the time was using the term that way, because Weber's work on charisma wasn't translated into English until the 1930s and 40s. Uh, Daniel Bell is one of the first people to use the term charisma, and he tries to use it in a Fortune magazine article in 1949, and the editor refuses to let him because he says that uh, it's not a (laughs) a word anyone knows, and so, um, so it's a similar concept. But it's also an anachronism because it's a term that isn't used in America. And the reason that I, I use it is that there really is no term that people settle on in America to describe the mm-hmm. phenomenon I'm talking about. So I think it's better actually to use a term that is anachronistic, but that makes more sense to us today uh, than to use a term that not all Americans could agree on in the time period. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And you you also draw. The history of the idea of charisma back to the Greco-Roman world. Can you just uh, give us that? Yes, piece? right.
0: So, charisma uh, was a phrase that originates in, uh, if, if not, it's a, it's a right, it's a Greek uh, word uh, first used in the Bible by Saint Paul to refer to a gift of of grace given by God, a special power given by God to an individual. Um, it's then basically forgot. It's rediscovered in Germany in the eighteen seventies by a theologian named Rudolf Sohm who uses it really in the same way St. Paul uses it. And then Weber takes it from Somme and and really transforms it into a description of a a social movement, a social relationship, uh, which is not the way it was originally intended.
1: Right. And I love the the terms you use to balance your approach to charisma against Weber's, where you say uh, Weber approaching it as a world historical force, whereas you're looking at it as as a historically bounded phenomenon. And I really appreciated that nuance, and especially I love the way you finished the introduction when you when you write that it was belief in the power of charisma that caused historical change. And the first step in Chapter 1 is kind of a backstory to Wilson and Roosevelt, the guys you've been talking about so far. Going back to Mesmer and Henry Ward Beecher, James G. Blaine, do you want to give us kind of the backstory to the progressive movement that you lay out in Chapter 1? Oh, one? sure. Well,
0: the, the story actually... Um starts with Henry Ward Beecher who is the most mm-hmm. the, the the most effective uh, charismatic speaker personally magnetic speaker probably in American history I would say unquestionably in American history because mm-hmm. he had a speech impediment as a child as you probably know he was a member of a of a family of ministers and yeah. And, yeah. and they wanted him to be able to be a minister and so they sent him to Amherst uh, when he was twelve. Uh, because in those days you could get into Amherst when you were 12. Uh, And he spends three years studying the personally magnetic style for hours every day in order to overcome his speech impediment, which is probably more intensive work in that style than anyone in American history has ever done. And when he's done with it, he can not only speak using this distinctive speaking style, but he's the only American that I've discovered who could do it extemporaneously. It becomes such a second nature to him that he can just... Say whatever he wants. He can make stuff up, and he can use the speaking style while he's doing it. And so he goes all over the country and becomes a sought-after speaker, um, in part because for the first time there's a there's a transcontinental railroad system that allows uh, yep. him to to really go everywhere and travel all and, and give the same sermons to people all over the, the, the country. And Americans are just absolutely flabbergasted. That they've never seen someone speak in the way that he speaks, and they begin to describe this as personal magnetism, a term that is borrowed from mesmer's uh, hypnotism and magnetic fluid theories. Uh, because because <laughs> right, they right. because they don't understand that it's coming from this textbook that he studied out of. That it's coming from a from a particular speaking style, and so they assume that it's just something innate and in, within Beecher, and. Mm-hmm. He he gives these speeches and he sort of creates this movement and then everyone starts doing it. James Blaine begins to do it, although he doesn't use the same speaking style. Um, William Jennings Bryan begins to use it. Billy Sunday um, and many many others.
1: The the metaphor that you draw on, uh, you start with a newspaper article describing a concert where a conductor is leading an orchestra. And you bring back a metaphor of the instrument a couple of times. Can you talk about how that was useful?
0: Yes. And so
1: the, the there's a lot of uh, descriptions of
0: the charismatic relationship, the relationship between leaders and followers, is often described by people as uh, the relationship between an organist and an organ. Uh, and they, they refer to, so they, so they describe then the followers, or in this case, the members of the orchestra, as the... Uh, as the, the organ, the frets and stops on the organ, which are being played by the by the organist. And the organist is the charismatic leader. And it's a great metaphor. and It recurs over and over because it's a, it, it, the idea is that that um, by working together, the leader and the followers create this sort of harmonious music uh, and do something that uh, is only possible as a collective work uh, in the same way that uh, an organist can't Make beautiful music without it, without an organ to respond to his his touch or her touch Th- that I think is the central the central concept there. Of course, it also describes uh, the followers as passive in the way an organ is passive which, oh, right. which really I think I ultimately argue is not the case. I argue that the followers are, are more in control of the leader follower relationship certainly than an organ is of the organist organ relationship
1: mm-hmm right. The other thing you do in chapter one that I really appreciate is the way you lay out uh, the the context in which Beecher's techniques, his what you call his his artifice and his engagement with emotion, the the cultural context in which it could become such a powerful tool for, for him. And there's there's even a little history of technology piece, as you mentioned, with the railroads. I love how that sets up what comes back at the end of the book. And I want to make sure we come back to what's going on with mass communication at the end of the period you've chosen, sure. because almost what I saw for, for your periodization choosing 1870 to 1940 was almost uh, based in technology. Can you talk a little bit more about how you see the history of technology playing into the cultural history that you're writing?
0: Sure. I like to say that this, this book is a, is a study of uh, mass media before mass media, because, right. because it's a, it's a, it's a book about mass media without electronic amplification. People traveling all over the country, giving the same speeches to mass audiences, um, but they, they aren't, they essentially aren't simultaneous mass audiences. They're, they're speaking right, right. rather than speaking to the whole nation all at once as, as Franklin Roosevelt eventually does on the radio. They are speaking to individual crowds, but giving the same speech over and over again. And so it, it, the history of technology does influence this a lot because, the, the development of the railroad, the development of uh, certain sound engineering technologies to amplify the voice um, do make it more possible for these figures to speak to larger audiences and more national audiences. But then ultimately mm-hmm. the development of the radio comes along and really changes the calculus because speakers have to speak in different ways and ultimately the radio undermines the personally magnetic speaking style.
1: The other piece that comes in at the beginning of your argument, uh, it was really interesting to me that 1841 was an important date because there are two pieces that were published in 1841 that set up some of the contention that comes back Uh, And recurs throughout your argument about who would use charisma and to what ends. Uh, You talk about Thomas Carlyle's book that's published in the U.S. in 1841 about uh, heroes and heroism. And you talk about Emerson's Self-Reliance, also published in 1841. Can you talk a little bit about how that that year and those publications set up some of the cultural forces that would play with charisma going forward in your argument. Sure. So uh, Carlisle of course is, is very interested in the idea of
0: heroism and hero worship. And while he doesn't really imagine a, a a sort of mutual leader follower relationship, he does help to pioneer the idea that uh, uh, reading about and thinking about and trying to emulate heroes uh, people like, uh, Oliver Cromwell or, or, uh, various heroes that he describes is a way of improving oneself and improving one's society. And that is an idea that becomes very popular among a number of progressives. Uh, Jane Addams is a fan of Carlyle. Billy E. B. Du Bois is a fan of Carlyle. Uh, Edward A. Ross is a fan of Carlyle. There, there are just a number of people who, who are motivated by that basic idea that the worship of of heroes of some sort um, is good for society and good for their own development that they're able to really adopt that that uh, sort of leads them into the direction of charismatic leadership or followership. And then Emerson is, uh, is sort of a critic of charisma and he's, he's maybe the first critic of charisma in this time period. Uh, and he, he, he talks about how he's sort of frustrated with Andrew Jackson and how, how charismatic he is and how people are, are, are seduced by his magnetism even though Emerson is not a big fan of Jackson's and really sort of prefigures some of the anti-charismatic arguments that we'll see later in the time period.
1: And then you wrap up uh, chapter one with fears about charisma in relation to sexual anxieties mm-hmm. and, and fears of sexual predators being able to make use of personal magnetism, which I thought was really interesting in terms of especially how it brought Beecher down. Can you just give us that before we step into chapter two? Oh, yes,
0: absolutely. Well, that that was a fear that I think was was founded in a lot of truth because, of mm-hmm. course, Beecher used his, his incredible magnetism to seduce basically every woman in his in his uh, parish that's an exaggeration uh but not a huge one i mean he was this is a common move on on his part was to uh to seduce especially the wives of his assistant pastors. something he did more than once uh and he he there's, there's these arguments about whether or not um beecher's magnetism will allow him to seduce these women or whether it's He's just sort of—it makes him appealing, and then the women want to fall into his arms. Uh, there are people who argue that he's—that uh, he's dangerous because of his magnetism, and others who argue that it's not his fault and he—he he just can't—he uh, can't help how women respond to him. Uh, but there is a general sort of sense that that uh, improprieties and corruption go hand in hand with charisma, and that's something that really is uh, corruption in the case of James Blaine and. And uh, sexual behavior in the case of Beecher—that is something that that really does recur throughout this time period as a criticism of charisma.
1: Mm-hmm. And that kind of suspicion of the of the things that charisma will be used for comes back in really interesting ways going forward. As you talk about some of the other political and religious careers, let's talk about uh, where you start chapter two with James Rush, who he was, and how he influenced. The, especially the style of charisma. Yes, James Rush was
0: probably the most important figure in the development of the personally magnetic speaking style. Rush was the son of Benjamin Rush, the signer of the Declaration of Independence. And he mm. was a medical doctor, uh, and he was fascinated with uh, the human voice. And he writes a book called The Philosophy of the Human Voice in 1827, which is basically, partially a, a proto-linguistic text, a, a linguistic phonology text, uh, in which he breaks down the, the, uh, the, the ways that words sound and the ways that uh, they should sound, and part of it is his attempt to connect uh, the certain vocal techniques with certain emotions, to express emotion through public speaking by using certain techniques that reflect those emotions. And it's a style that may have been based on his experience attending the theater because it's very popular among actors in the early uh, 19th century, such as Edwin Forrest. But it's also a style that is that is really idiosyncratic and based on uh, Rush's own personal tastes in public speaking. And it becomes incredibly popular as a teaching uh, tool. It, It is... Um, It is adapted into a series of textbooks by uh, Rush's friend, Jonathan Barber, and those textbooks become incredibly popular throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries. And people who study from those textbooks go on to be some of the most charismatic and most popular uh, political and religious and social activist figures in the late 19th and early 20th centuries.
1: I love the way that you were able to trace from Rush... For instance, through Barber and Lovell to Beecher, or through Hamill to William Jennings Bryan, uh, through Cumnock to Billy Sunday. As you say, so many of these figures that we now look back on and think of as great orators and great charismatic figures, you're able to trace the, their training and the, the techniques they use back to Rush Really concretely, uh, I thought that was a compelling a compelling piece of your argument. Finney also plays a big part in this chapter. Can you talk a little bit about Finney, who he was, what he was doing, and how he influenced later uh, charismatic speakers? Sure. So
0: Charles Grandison Finney, this is, is, of course, one of the most important, if not the most important revivalist ministers uh, in America in the 19th century. And he's active uh, as a revivalist from 1925 to 1935, and then he... Uh, takes a position as president of Ober- Oberlin College and continues to serve in that position for, uh, for decades until his death in the 1870s. And Finney is primarily known for being, uh, the leading revivalist of the Second Great Awakening, for being the, the, the guy who mainstreamed the idea of second conversions as a requirement for, for, uh, salvation. But he, He also uh, is significant in this story because he argues in his lectures on revivals of religion, he argues that it it is basically socially valuable to speak in emotional ways. And this is a a viewpoint that contradicts a lot of what what other Americans have been arguing, Americans who... Who feel that, that charisma and personally magnetic and emotional speaking styles are dangerous or demagogic. And Finney, like Henry Ward Beecher after him, comes at it from, from a, a conversion perspective. He says, whatever you have to do to convert people, it is a, is a good and moral thing to do. And so if that means speaking to them in an emotional way that causes them to react emotionally rather than uh, rationally, then that is totally worth doing because it makes you um, it, it, it makes you, you, it, it creates more conversions it, it sends them to heaven. And so that idea that charismatic speech and personal magnetism have, are socially beneficial really derives in large part from
1: Finney and his successors. Two other, two other pieces of the argument that I really loved just because they were kind of fun to read about were The Bamboo Cage and The Handshake. Can you talk about those? Yes.
0: Uh, So uh, Jonathan Barber, who was Rush's friend and was also a professor of elocution at Harvard, um, adapted or or merged Rush's uh, ideas about public speaking with a gestural system developed by a uh, British clergyman named Gilbert Austin. And the gestural system was very precise, very specific. It said that if you touch a different point, it imagines a, the speaker inscribed within a sphere and if you touch a different point on that sphere it reflects a different emotion and so Barber took this very seriously and he built a bamboo cage for his students to stand in <laughs> uh, and they had to put their hands through different slats to reflect different emotions and one day Barber went went to Harvard and he couldn't find his bamboo cage and he looked up and it was in the top of the tallest tree because the students had put it there because they did not enjoy standing in it while well <laughs> of these techniques
1: yeah yeah uh finney finney in the handshake which is now so you know it's it's ubiquitous in american public speaking
0: right so the idea that uh one of the key components of of the charismatic relationship is that after the public speech is given by the charismatic leader there is almost always an opportunity for the followers to shake the leader's hand and this handshake uh w- which in some cases in billy sunday's case for instance is is very uh much integrated into the service if you convert the way you convert is you walk up to the front of the room and shake billy sunday's hand so it's it's a reward for conversion and the handshake is a way of cementing the the sort of emotional connection between leaders and followers and so um, it, it's it's one of the things that the the followers report remembering the most uh, followers of Eugene Debs say that the, when they shook his hand it just changed their their sort of it, there was wave of emotion came over them and they became mm-hmm. uh, and they, they became instant converts and they remain supporters for decades. Uh, one speaker, one oral history uh, subject who was a follower of Marcus Garvey said that when he shook his hand, he felt like a wave of electricity was traveling through him. And so, the handshake is a very is a very key component of this Luther follower relationship.
1: I'd never heard a history of the public handshake before, so <laughs> seeing this go go back all the way to Finney was was really fascinating. Another big piece of this chapter that moves the focus slightly away. From the speakers, and even away from the followers, on an intermediary figure is the section of the chapter on the organizers, and especially Pond. Can you talk about that piece of charisma a little bit?
0: Yes. So James Burton Pond, who was a Civil War veteran, uh, major in the Civil War, uh, became a the, the most important lecture manager on the Chautauqua circuit in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and he was basically uh, represented a number of, of clients he, for a while. He owned uh, a Chautauqua lecture circuit um, and his role and the role of people like him was to essentially create audiences and, and smooth out the kinks when it came to uh, speakers touring, that trying to organize these national speaking tours to to speak in front of a national audience was difficult. And so a lot of people hired figures like Pond to, uh, do that for them, to, to pave the way and, and make it so that they could go speak and be guaranteed of an audience, so that there was someone to negotiate contracts for them so that they didn't have to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating about these, uh, these managers is that, and charismatic organizers, is that in many cases, they were not true believers in the people that they were helping. Uh, Pond, right. Pond talks about, uh the how he sort of sort of screwed one of his clients out of a fee and how he convinced another client who was a political activist and was trying to speak to large audiences that he should speak to smaller audiences in order to make more money. Um, and uh there's a fascinating story that uh, Albert Hubbard, one of one of uh uh Pond's clients relates uh which is that uh one one day Pond and Hubbard were on tour and there was a uh, policemen who showed up to collect a fee that they were supposed to have paid and hadn't paid. And Pond responded by kicking him down the stairs uh, and then, and then <laughs> leaving town on the midnight train. So it was kind of a rough and tumble experience for these organizers and, and uh, no, not for, for, for Pond more than for anyone.
1: So the stage is now just about set for William Jennings, Bryan and and Wilson and Roosevelt. But before you leave chapter two, You talk about who gets left out of charisma and why charisma, for instance, wasn't – was a field that was cut off particularly from uh, women speakers and from black organizers and, and speakers and orators. Uh, And the relationship between the idea of charisma and charismatic relationships between leaders and followers and these other people, movement speakers, how they tried to access the power of charisma and what their experiences were. Before we move on, can you talk some about that section of your your research? Absolutely. So uh,
0: charisma, I wouldn't say it was cut off from women and African-Americans, but it was there was Mm -hmm. definitely a lot of resistance uh, from white men and, and white middle class people to women and uh, and African Americans who wanted to use charisma. Now that resistance was not insurmountable, and a number of women were, and African Americans were able to use that style. Women in particular, mm-hmm. uh, such as Frances Willard and, um, Anna Elizabeth Dickinson and Susan B. Anthony spoke in charismatic ways, um, and were, were able to do so, but they faced a lot of pushback. An example is, is, mm-hmm. is, uh, Frances Willard, uh, went on a, uh, went on a speaking tour as the, the women's minister for Dwight Moody, the revivalist. And Moody refused to pay her anything and then refused to allow her to uh, to work on uh, – to give temperance lectures on the side for money. Uh, and ultimately she had to quit because she described it as a straitjacket that was too straight uh, the, dealing with him. And a number of right. women uh, were uh, attacked, or or uh, or belittled, or in some cases even arrested for uh, speaking charismatically. Mariah Woodward Edder, for instance, uh, was was uh, arrested in St. Louis for uh, mental insanity because she she was uh, a couple of medical doctors thought that there was no way that she could uh, run a Pentecostal service uh, without being crazy because she was a woman and clearly uh, wasn't capable of personal magnetism. Uh, and, and women had to deal with a lot of those things, and a lot of them sort of adapted to the styles that uh, – or to the, to the uh, sort of more traditional female styles of speaking. And others found ways to persist without uh, challenging so directly these sort of stereotypes of charisma as white and male were. As far as African Americans, uh, there were – charismatic african-americans a number of them uh -hmm. uh, booker t washington is a good example and one i spend a lot of time on in the book but for the most part uh the difficulty for charismatic african-americans was that they were they were attacked not for being charismatic not for speaking publicly but they were attacked right. if they used that speech to advocate for racial equality. So Booker T. Washington was able to speak charismatically and not be attacked for it because he was not really advocating for racial equality. But other figures uh, who were uh, were were not were not able to uh, were were much more challenged by uh, by white audiences.
1: And um, I actually found this book because of your recent piece published in Black Perspectives on uh, the relationship between Black Orders and Charisma, which, uh, if if anyone wants to check that out, gives a a good taste of what's going on in the book and and what your work is like. The next chapter is the one you mentioned earlier, where you really turn your focus toward followers. What's going on with followers of these figures who are using these techniques and styles and part of this tradition? You explore such a range of, of literature and genres and compare a number of different kinds of, as you mentioned earlier, follower experiences and relationships. Can you talk a little bit about how you went about writing this chapter, but also the conclusions you were able to pull out from collecting these various follower experiences and testimonies? I think this was probably my favorite chapter uh, because it's just mm-hmm, so wonderful mm-hmm. to
0: to hear what these what these people are experiencing and how the way that they experience it changes. Uh, society and changes the structure and the culture of leadership and of these movements. And so, the way that I wrote the the, the chapter was was really just to to go to these archives, or uh, in many cases, the archives I was using were available on microfilm, uh, and so to simply use use them, um, uh, use the sources that I was able to find and just read what people were saying about. Uh, The leaders that they were following and how they described their that followership and then simply describe it and write it down and explain how it affected people's lives and how it affected society. More generally, so I used these these collections uh, on the three major collections I used were letters written to Billy Sunday, letters to William Jennings Bryan in 1896, and letters written to Eugene Debs. But then I used a, a, probably a half dozen other collections in addition to that, which were smaller. And I just I read the sources. I I, I simply uh, looked for similarities and described and differences and described what those were. So ultimately, it's. The, it, this was an experience that uh, was different from what we might expect it to be in a number of ways, the experience of following charismatic leaders. For one thing, most Americans who followed charismatic leaders did not see themselves as participating in some sort of societal change. They saw it as a response to to their own personal internal crises or failings. People talk about uh, how they need to follow a charismatic leader because they've been serving the devil in their own lives. They don't talk about uh, they don 't talk right. about industrial capitalism; they talk about their their own experiences in that way, and mm-hmm. they essentially uh, you know so so they have these internal crises and then they they go on and uh, go to these uh, see these charismatic movements and I describe uh, in detail what it is about about the charismatic experience, how it works, and how it uh, influences people so basically uh there's always a musical performance before the speaker then there is a charismatic speech using the James Rush speaking style and <laughs> yeah. and then finally there is the handshake and there are some other components uh in certain examples but those 3 are there all the time and people uh, go through this process and when they're done they, they for some reason this particular process of uh of performance of speaking of Handshaking of music uh, leads to vitally emotional commitments on the part of followers to these leaders, and it motivates them not only to um, to follow this particular leader, but to really devote themselves to promoting the agenda of the leader. And so they go out and, if they're religious followers, they go out and convert people. Billy Sunday's followers go out and campaign for and win statewide prohibition uh, laws. Um, William Jennings Bryan's followers give up their businesses and uh, go campaign for him full time or they name their children after him and ultimately simply by following these charismatic leaders followers change the culture of leadership because they promote the leaders who are the most uh, charismatic who appeal to them the most whose combination of charisma and ideas is most attractive to them And that is really a mechanism of change. I think it's a way that that uh, uh, that society changes during this time period is by people simply following leaders who inspire them. And then those leaders become more prominent and more more successful and their ideas are advanced.
1: Mm -hmm. I just found it so interesting the way that you approached even criticisms of charismatic followership at the time that were focused on it as frenzy or hysteria or, you know, kind of a. A dissipation and waste of American energy and and wealth and and, and commitments, and the way that you're able to, from all these archives, extract and and analyze the ways in which charismatic followership was actually translating these internal individual longings into political action, and and the ways in which charismatic followership was actually an empowering of ordinary Americans, and not a stripping away of power or agency. In a way that, as you said earlier, belies the kind of instrument metaphor where these people are just passive it's actually activating them in a really uh, interesting way. I also really appreciated this chapter. I thought it was a powerful piece of your argument and and part of what makes your book really worth reading. The next chapter you really dive into some of that backlash and examine a couple of different perspectives kind of of analysts of the of the personal magnetism and the charismatic leader follower relationship uh, starting with Watterson and then Lebon and William James. Can you talk about their different perspectives on what was going on with the charismatic relationship?
0: Sure. Well, Henry Watterson, who was the uh, Democratic politician and the editor of the Louisville Courier Journal, was probably the most implacable opponent of uh, charisma and personal magnetism. He spends his entire career attacking it, describing it as hysterical screaming, uh, which, of course, is 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 a sort of feminizing term at the time um Mm -hmm. and uh and actually there's there's a wonderful editorial in which he has the unpleasant task of having to defend uh alton parker as a democratic presidential candidate against theodore roosevelt because of course alton parker is one of the most colorless people you'll ever see in politics and his argument is exactly that because Alton Parker is so colorless that that makes him a good candidate. He says he says that he's (laughs) he's he's as plain and unpretending as an old shoe and he fits like one and wears like one. And that's good. Uh, And so his argument is very clear. He feels that charisma, that this sort of emotional um, uh, politics and campaigning uh, is is dangerous, that it's anti-democratic, that it, it leads people away from from rationalism at base Waterson is a classical liberal, and he sees uh, charisma as as an anti-liberal or illiberal idea. And Gustave Le Bon, who is a uh, French uh, crowd theorist, has a, a a take that is similar in some ways and different in others. He's not particularly uh, positive toward uh, crowd psychology or toward the emotional relationship between leaders and followers, but he does see it as uh, as inevitable, and so he urges. Uh, leaders who are wise and thoughtful to basically adopt charismatic techniques in order to manipulate the masses in good ways because they can't help but being manipulated. Right. And William James writes a review of that book, of the of the crowd, and he really sort of picks it apart. He says that LeBon is assuming that uh, all crowds are, are stupid and thoughtless um, and that that's a mistake and that crowds are made up of people who are Thinking about what they're doing, who are considering uh, the reasons that they choose various things and that we should take crowds more seriously as as intellectual bodies than Le Bonne does. And the rest of the chapter investigates uh, several people who do exactly that.
1: Yeah, can we talk about Crowley and Hubbard? Two two figures that I've never studied before, you know, the names come up here and there, but reading the way that they, the, the part that they play in this narrative that you're putting together was really interesting. Let's talk about Crowley and Hubbard and who they were and what they were doing.
0: Sure. So Herbert Crowley uh, was the uh, editor of the New Republic and of the Architectural Review. He was a, a major progressive journalist and philosopher, and he writes a book, The Promise of American Life in 1909, which uh, is viewed by most progressives as the sort of bible of progressivism and in that book he advocates openly for charisma he advocates for charisma basically as a political strategy he says that it is the way progressives should go about uh, trying to to win elections and trying to as he would say regenerate society an idea he gets from william james Uh, he thinks that uh, what he calls the democratic saint francis or an imitator of jesus uh, should arise and basically inspire Americans to follow progressive ideas. He thinks that progressivism can only succeed if uh, if its leaders adopt uh, inspirational techniques and emotional techniques rather than focusing strictly on ideas. Um, he has a surprising counterpart on the conservative side of things in Albert Hubbard. Hubbard was an atheist. He was a New Thought practitioner. Um, and he was a he was a conservative he was a big fan of big business he was a union buster um, and he also on um, most conservatives at the time were opposed to charisma because they saw it as a way of empowering the little guy against against big business and Hubbard sees it differently he sees charisma uh, and I talk about his message to Garcia and his uh, his yes. description of his his uh, biography of Jesus the man of sorrows um, and Hubbard sees charisma as a way of inspiring people to to follow the established order uh, inspiring them to sort of uh, stay in line and and not try to change things Um, and he uses a very interesting technique of of basically uh, written charisma writing books about uh, about heroes and leaders who are supposedly going to inspire ordinary workers to act just like them and that's his way of, of convincing, trying to convince uh, people to become conservative through charisma. It's not a, a solution that really is ultimately borne out. Conservatives tend to turn against charisma in in the 1910s and 20s. But uh, there are some, including Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller Jr., who are convinced by Hubbard that charisma is, is something that can u- be used to sell conservatism. Mm-hmm.
1: I really loved the way that you also went to looking at the labor radicals and their suspicion of charisma as well with some significant exceptions. Can you talk about the figure of the martyr and the agitator in labor radicalism? So
0: labor radicals are generally opposed to charisma because they see it as a way of co-opting movements and of creating false consciousness, but they're comfortable with martyrs like the songwriter Joe Hill. Uh, and you can mm-hmm. understand why because martyrs are dead, and so they can't really uh they can't really <laughs> manipulate yeah. people into yeah. being pro corporate um, but they're also supportive of what they call agitators who, which are essentially charismatic speakers who are supposed to whip up a crowd and then get out of the way and let the people rule. The problem is of course uh, agitators don't always step out of the way. So I talk about uh, Big Bill Haywood and Eugene Debs as figures who are accepted and embraced by labor radicals
1: as agitators, but who really are just ordinary charismatic
0: leaders who are leading movements and and occupying positions of of authority.
1: And you did a really interesting thing here where you compared the way that Debs and Hubbard use the figure of Jesus. Could you talk about that a little bit? They use
0: him in in fairly similar ways because uh, they, they describe Uh, They both describe him as a sort of example of how leaders should lead in modern society, but uh, Hubbard talks about Jesus as a a figure who can convince uh, people to embrace the established order, which I don't really see how he gets that from from Jesus. (laughs) And uh, and Deb sees him as someone who – as basically a socialist, a a Mm proto-socialist. Um, and so they, they both see him as, as a figure that can be used effectively to win people over to their ideas, but they have different ideas that they want to use him to win people over to.
1: And that seemed so powerfully to me to encapsulate kind of what you're doing with charisma in your argument as a whole. Different camps use the techniques or the powers of the figure at hand for opposing ends at the same time that there's also groups in both those camps that are suspicious of the the means of charisma, of these kinds of relationships. So to close our discussion of the book, this isn't going to take us right to the last chapter, but let's talk about... Um, Chapter 5, The Rise and Fall of Progressive Charisma with Roosevelt and Wilson and how they were attempting to use this tradition of charisma that's at this point pervasive. Sure. So Roosevelt and Wilson
0: uh, basically decide – Roosevelt in particular in in 1912 – and Wilson – uh, really not until later in his career in, in 1919 when he's trying to sell the League of Nations uh, they decide that they want to use charisma as a way of getting basically getting elected they, they buy into Herbert Crowley's idea of charisma as a um, as a sort of uh, way of, of taking over politics uh, as, as a, a force that can counteract the, the established uh, political order and it doesn't work for them And ultimately, Mm -hmm. I argue that it doesn't work for them because they don't really understand what charisma is about. William Jennings Bryan says, uh, if you speak to the multitude and they do not respond, do not despise them, but rather examine what you have said because mankind deserves to be trusted. And that's not the approach that the progressives take. The, approach, the progressives are, uh, as many historians have acknowledged, are elitist. Uh, they see the, uh, their role as educating the public rather than reflecting the public's ideas. And so Theodore Roosevelt uh, doesn't doesn't recognize that it's his job as a charismatic speaker to get in front of audiences and shake their hands. He tries to use a, a newspaper-based Uh, campaign instead, where he gives a speech and it gets printed in in the newspapers. Woodrow Wilson, uh, basically refuses for most of his career to speak in a charismatic way because he feels that it's, that his job is to teach people, uh, how to, how to be different rather than to reflect their own emotional responses and, and intellectual responses to, to politics. Ultimately, and, and actually there's a wonderful, uh, piece that I found in a newspaper editorial about him where they, they, they tell us, this wonderful fictitious story about how Wilson was speaking in front of a pitcher of ice water and no one could tell which one was the pitcher of ice water, which one was the president. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so ultimately, because they are not able to accept that charisma is a mutual thing, that it is something directed by, in many cases, the followers, that the organ plays the organist just as, as the organist mm. plays the organ, uh, they aren't really able to, to use charisma effectively.
1: One of the questions that you engage in this chapter, which um, just brought your work into the present moment for me, was the question of whether charismatic leadership could replace uh, party function, political parties, and how important that question was to Wilson and Roosevelt. Do you want to, maybe to wrap up, do you want to give us a little meditation on, uh, on the roles of charisma and party function and how some of those questions directed action for Roosevelt and for Wilson and and why it would be worth going back and revisiting this history with a with a careful eye for today well ultimately as i discuss in the final chapter ultimately
0: charisma doesn't replace party function charisma is adapted into party function and that's something that that happens with uh, with Franklin Roosevelt more than anyone, uh, that he's able to to adapt the, the, the sort of basic idea. He doesn't use the speaking style. The speaking style ultimately does not become a permanent uh, part of American culture, largely because the radio supersedes it. It's, it's not a, a very popular style on the radio. But what does become particularly important is the the relationship, the emotional connection between leaders and followers, and the idea that followers have some sort of a right to an emotional relationship with their leaders. And that becomes mm-hmm. a central component of our society. And it's something that really didn't exist uh, before uh, Charisma. It's not something really that Roosevelt and Wilson understand, but it is something that Franklin Roosevelt understands very well. That He, he, he comes into people's living rooms and speaks to them over the radio and, and speaks to them in a, in a down-to-earth way. And ever since, politicians have been doing that. They've been, they've been speaking directly to to people, uh, and that is something that that we just couldn't imagine our democracy without. And that ultimately is the argument of the book: that simply by following these charismatic uh, leaders and by elevating them to positions of prominence because their movements are large and because they've, they've swelled, that uh, that followers are able to change the culture of leadership away from a culture of emotional distance. Uh, which was pervasive before the 1880s where politicians weren't even supposed to run for office or, or, or communicate in any way with voters, changing that culture to this culture of emotional availability, which pervades our system today. uh, And which I think is a central element of our democracy that we take for granted.
1: Yeah. I love the way that you turn at the end to talking about the intimacy of the fireside chat and Uh, And how that's important. And and I thought, of course, because I knew I was going to be talking with you, the intimacy of the podcast. Yes. Here we are (laughs) uh, talking right into someone's ears as they do the dishes or are on their commute. Mm -hmm. Um, So before we go, can you tell us maybe what you're working on now and what we can expect from you next in the future? Sure. So
0: I'm in the very early stages of working on a book about – about alternate realities in american culture in the 19th and 20th centuries so i'm trying to uh, figure out why it is that so many americans in different capacities science fiction writers philosophers confidence men uh uh, people who who were uh performing on the stage uh, embraced the idea that the world is not real and that there is some sort of secret hidden reality of available only to a select few, uh, and that they, mm-hmm. they, of course, are among that select few. And so I'm looking at a variety of different figures. This is, a very, this is in the very early stages, but I'm pretty excited about that right. project, and I think it could be very interesting, alternate realities in American culture.
1: That's great. Well, I'm I'm also a big fan of, of science fiction and the history of science fiction, so I will be following along, and I can't wait to, to read that. Well, maybe we can do another, another interview when that one
0: comes out. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> let's.
1: So again, uh, Jeremy, thanks so much for uh, joining us on New Books in Intellectual History. Well, thank you for having me.